Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. I feel like we've been on a reality show that we didn't ask to be cast in the last four years. That's how I feel. And I feel like this is like the, the season finale. We're going to know if we're going to continue with this crazy chaos or if the show is going to be canceled and we're going to move on to something else. As former Vice President Joe Biden is set to pass the 270 electoral college votes needed to secure the victory in the 2020 presidential race, Donald Trump and his supporters plunge into deep denial with unproven accusations of nationwide electoral fraud. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. Those who are eager to see Trump's presidency and also take to the streets, positive that they will see that end if every vote is counted. Make no mistakes, we are here today because this is an attack on the very civil and voting rights we fought for 60 years ago. Count every ballot. Unions for all workers who want one. And justice for all Americans. All that and much more coming up. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. As of early Friday morning, it appeared that former Vice President Joe Biden was on his way to securing enough electoral college votes to become the next president of the United States. And with votes from mail-in ballots being counted in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, and North Carolina, Biden is taking the lead in Georgia turned blue for a Democratic candidate for the first time since 1992. And he's expected to win Pennsylvania, with the remaining mail-in ballots being counted from the Democratic strongholds of Philadelphia and nearby suburbs. Thursday afternoon, Biden spoke from Delaware, supporting the effort to count every vote and expressing confidence that after all votes are counted, that he will prevail. In America, the vote is sacred. It's how people of this nation express their will. And it is the will of the voters, no one, not anything else, that chooses the President of the United States of America. So, each ballot must be counted. A few hours later, Donald Trump delivered from the White House a speech that alarmed pundits, even members of his own party. Trump repeatedly lied, saying at one point that he had won in Michigan and attacking the national election process, particularly mail-in ballots, even though the U.S. is in the middle of a pandemic. I've been talking about mail-in voting for a long time. It's, uh, it's really destroyed our system. It's a corrupt system, and it makes people corrupt even if they aren't by nature. But they become corrupt. It's too easy. Trump's misinformation and distortions were broadcast internationally and repeated by right-wing news organizations. As Trump's team presses on with threatened lawsuits designed to stop the count of ballots, his followers attempted this week in Arizona and in Michigan to storm vote counting centers. Late Thursday night, two men were arrested in Philadelphia in connection with a threatened attack on the Pennsylvania Convention Center where votes are being counted. While all eyes are on this presidential election, the dual crisis of the economy and coronavirus are not taking a pause. 
More than a million Americans filed new unemployment claims for the week ending October 31st. And for the second day in a row, the United States recorded more than 100,000 new coronavirus cases in a single day on Thursday, with cases on college campuses reaching a quarter million. In D.C., the public school plan to restart in-person classes has been scrapped. Thomas O'Rourke has more. D.C. Public Schools is canceling a plan to bring some elementary students back to school starting November 9 after a widely observed teacher sick-out on Monday, November 2nd. Mayor Muriel Bowser had announced earlier that DCPS would bring back some 7,000 students from pre-K to 5th grade, with priority going to homeless, disabled, or English-language learner students. Opposition to the plan, while led by teachers, was also supported by some parents and principals, citing concerns over safety, the method these students were chosen, and the fact that many would be forced to change teachers mid-year. A Washington Teachers Union member-wide vote at a virtual meeting last week resulted in 93% of the teachers declaring no confidence in Bowser's reopening plans. For On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke. In D.C., many downtown storefronts are boarded up in anticipation for property destruction and chaos predicted by the White House that so far has not materialized. Rather, on election night, there were peaceful protesters on Black Lives Matter Plaza near the White House. And there were protesters and concert goers dancing to live go-go music before they were violently cleared from the plaza by the Metropolitan Police Department. I asked Black Lives Matter D.C. organizer April Goggins what happened. So basically, yeah, the police just, we saw them coming. Once It was just like a few people in the beginning. And then you just saw MPD, it had to be at least 50 MPD officers surrounded it um, to try to shut it down for no reason. I mean, there was far, le- there's probably five times more police than there were people just listening to dancing to go-go. There were kids there that got, you know, bum-rushed by the police. It, I mean, it's just, MPD is just ready to pounce. I mean, they got their $130,000 last week to, you know, deal with protests. And, you know, they've been, they've been working it out before tonight. Well, in international news, under the cover of the U.S. presidential election, the Israeli military bulldozed an entire Bedouin community in the occupied West Bank of Palestine on Tuesday, leaving scores of people, including more than 40 children, homeless during a cold, driving rainstorm. Just hours before the cold front rolled through the West Bank, Israel Defense Forces troops raised the Bedouin hamlet of Kerbet Humsa near Tubas in the Jordan Valley, forcing 74 people, including 41 children, one just three months old, out into the approaching storm. The Palestine Center for Human Rights said this can only be considered an act of ethnic cleansing against the indigenous Palestinian population. In culture and media, the Gray Zone reports this week on their recent trip to Bolivia about indigenous people demanding justice for their family members murdered or tortured by the right-wing coup regime just removed from power. And the team of the former Sputnik radio show Loud and Clear with Brian Becker, Nicole Rossell, and Walter Smolarik is launching a new twice-weekly podcast called The Socialist Program with Brian Becker. 
And during this week in history, November 2nd, 1889, Menelik II was crowned Negusa Nagast, King of Kings of Abyssinia, Ethiopia. By 1899, Abyssinia had extended as far as Kenya in the south, Somaliland in the east, and the Sudan in the west. During his reign, Menelik devoted much of his time to building railroads, schools, hospitals, and industries, though he is best known for leading his country to military victory over Italian forces at the Battle of Adwa in March 1896. In November 1, 1995, the first all-race local government elections took place in South Africa, marking the end of the genocidal apartheid system. And then finally, I want to personally thank the Women's Institute for Freedom of the Press for their 2020 Women and Media Award. I'm very honored to be recognized this year along with Medea Benjamin, Anya Parampil, Dr. Margaret Flowers, Alina Duarte, and Eleanor Goldfield. My thanks again to Institute founders Martha Allen and Elena Anderson. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. pleasure to introduce the Reverend William Lamar for Metropolitan AME Church. Good afternoon, everyone. It is a joy to be with you. How many of you are excited about the good news that we're hearing, that votes are being counted, and that a difference is soon to be made? I'm here today with you this afternoon to let you know that labor built the house that I live in. That labor built the house of this nation. That where there is anything approximating democracy, it is because we have organized and built together. I'm here because their parents before them were laborers who were not compensated for the work that they did and the work that they did built the economy of this nation. I'm here because my parents were born into the segregated South and they struggled to have and maintain their voting rights and we are one generation removed in this nation from people being excluded from the franchise. And because we fought to make it happen, we're going to fight to make sure that every vote is counted. I want you to say that with me. We will count every vote. From C to C, every vote will be counted. We will not be intimidated, and no one will take away the right of our franchise. And I want to be clear to you today that I come from a tradition 
that reads a book called the Bible. And in the Bible, in the book of Nehemiah, there's a story about laborers like you who were rebuilding the wall of the city. And there were people trying to keep them from doing the work of labor. But what workers do is in the midst of challenge, we keep working. We keep putting one foot in front of the other. We keep getting up and doing our job. And when people tried to get them to come down from the work of rebuilding the city, they said, we will not stop. A great work is before us. And I've come to encourage us all that we cannot come down from the wall. We are doing great work. We are building a nation where everybody is respected, where everybody is paid for the labor that they do, and no one will deter us. And so I've come to ask us to maintain hope, to maintain trust, and to know that no matter what happens, no matter who wins, our work will not stop. We will keep fighting. We will keep building. We will make sure that all of God's children are worthy of their hire and are taken care of in ways that respect who they are. And so thank you for coming out today. We're going to count every vote. Hold on, keep dreaming and hoping and building together. This nation belongs to us. Thank you. It is my pleasure to now introduce Judith Howe from 32BJ SEIU. Please welcome Judith to the stage. Peace and power. Good afternoon, my name is Judith Howell, and I'm elected board member of my union, 32BJ SEIU. I work as an essential security officer, keeping people in office buildings safe and habitable here in D.C. First, I have to give a shout out to the hospital workers, from doctors, nurses, and administrators, to the orderlies, cleaning staff, security, and building engineers who continue to fight on the front lines against all odds, against this pandemic, this scourge, this plague. We owe you and your families our deepest gratitude. This election is a matter of life or death for black and brown essential workers like me. We are two to three times more likely than our white counterparts to contract COVID-19 and nearly three times as likely to die from the virus. We essential workers have been risking our lives to keep people safe and our crippled economy running without any essential pay for our essential work. That's why we voted for Joe Biden, who's committed to wage war against COVID to fight this divisive hatred that's infecting our country and to combat poverty, both the pre-existing poverty that has fueled this division and the legions of new poor created by COVID and the current Republican Party leadership's insistence on giving all of our nation's wealth and resources to the wealthy and avaristic. Essential workers like me voted for, and we now demand essential pay for the life-threatening, yet essential work we do and services we provide. We voted for COVID testing, free vaccination when one or more proven are safe, 
And we voted for affordable health care that covers pre-existing conditions and lowest prescription drug costs. We voted for full funding of public schools, restoration of federal aid for school lunch programs, and mitigation of student loan debt. We voted for affordable housing. We voted for just immigration reform and the reuniting of immigrant families with a fair path to citizenship. I was a civil rights activist in the 1960s, fighting redlining of our neighborhoods and fighting to create equitable economic opportunity for everyone. I have spent my life getting in good trouble. Make no mistakes, we are here today because this is an attack on the very civil and voting rights we fought for 60 years ago. Now we must turn our attention to supporting another vital sector of essential workers. The election officials who have run this election with integrity state to state and who are counting our votes. If my vote is my voice, then I have no voice unless my vote is counted. We remember Bush Gore, so stand down those semi-trucks you're revving up. I didn't risk my life during the Civil Rights Movement to have my vote stolen today. More than 140 of my fellow union essential workers lost their lives due to coronavirus. I am here today to make sure that they did not die in vain. My vote and their lives count. Essential workers turned out in record numbers in this election especially working people in communities of color who don't always vote. Count every ballot. Unions for all workers who want one. And justice for all Americans. When I say count our votes, you say count every vote. Count our votes. Count our votes. Count our votes. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Anna Cruz. Thank you so much to the many partners for inviting me here today who are working to ensure that we count every vote. I'm a student at Trinity Washington University in DC. I'm also a member of United We Dream, the nation's largest network of immigrant youth in the country. I was born and raised in DC. I currently live with my mother and stepfather. This year, I voted for the first time. <laughs> I wasn't alone either. Young people like me and first-time voters showed up in record numbers. Now it is important that every single vote is counted. My father and stepfather are immigrants who have temporary protected status and aren't eligible to vote. I was excited to be able to cast my first vote as a young Latina for people in my family who can. For those in my community who have DACA or TPS and who are in threat of deportation. And I wasn't alone. Young people across the country voted in record numbers. We showed up to make our voices heard. And this wasn't a fluke. We have been showing up over the past few years to protect our community against constant attacks to our humanity. 
we have taken to the streets in the millions over the last four years. In this election, we took the power we showed on the streets to the ballot box. Young people showed up. We showed up at the polls and we gave elected officials a mandate for bold. Pro progressive policies that help all people thrive. Now it is important that our voices are heard and that every single vote is counted. And then for us to move forward with a powerful mandate. For our democracy to work for all of us. Every single voter must have their voice heard and their vote counted. For our democracy to work for young people, we must continue to push for solutions that exclude no one and that helps everyone live and thrive. Thank you. You have been listening to speakers at the Count Every Vote rally held in McPherson Square in Northwest D.C. on Wednesday, November 4th, 2020. This is On the Ground. We'll be right back. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. As of late Thursday, it appeared that former Vice President Joe Biden was on his way to securing enough electoral college votes to become the next president of the United States. With the last votes from mail-in ballots being counted in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, and North Carolina. Thursday afternoon, Biden made a statement supporting the effort to count every vote and expressing confidence that after all votes are counted, that he would prevail. In America, the vote is sacred. It's how people of this nation express their will. And it is the will of the voters, no one, not anything else, that chooses the President of the United States of America. So, each ballot must be counted. And that's what we're going to see going through now. A few hours later, Donald Trump spoke from the White House in a performance that alarmed many pundits, even members of his own party. Trump repeatedly lied, saying that he had actually won in Michigan and attacked the national election process, particularly mail-in ballots. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. As Trump's team presses on with lawsuits designed to stop the vote in states where he sees his slim lead slipping away, his followers have been stopped in Arizona and in Michigan in their attempts to storm vote counting centers. This year's election, whatever the final outcome, will still need to be certified in the coming weeks. Well, joining me from around the country is a distinguished panel. Listeners know on the grounds geopolitical analyst Gerald Horn the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. The most recent of his three dozen books is The Dawning of the Apocalypse, 
the roots of slavery, white supremacy, settler colonialism, and capitalism in the long 16th century. He joins us from Houston, Texas. Author and veteran activist Makani Temba is chief strategist at Higher Ground Change Strategies based in Jackson, Mississippi. She has spent more than 20 years supporting organizations, coalitions, and philanthropic institutions in developing high-impact change initiatives. She joins us from Jackson, Mississippi. Rita Hill is director of the New Media Innovation and Entrepreneurship Lab and professor of practice at Arizona State University. Hill has been a frequent guest speaker at Harvard University's Neiman Foundation for Journalism and the National Press Club. She joins us from Phoenix, Arizona. And poet, activist, and educator Iwari Osayande is the award-winning author of four books, including his most recent, Black Phoenix Rising. His writing, speaking, organizing, and workshops are rooted in the liberating traditions of resistance to systems of white supremacy, colonialism, capitalism, and patriarchy. Well, welcome everyone to On the Ground. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, as I said in the intro, everything is fast moving, but it looked like as of Thursday night that Joe Biden was on his way to winning the 270 electoral college votes needed to claim victory. But the entire election is still not over and its overtones will still be felt. There are already hints that Trump will not concede and that we still don't have a certainty of a peaceful transfer of power. So let's start with everyone's first take on the election and where we are right now. And Gerald, let's start with you. Well, my first take is that given the fact that Mr. Trump's vote total went up from 2016 from about 63 million to about 68 million, that's a very dangerous and troubling signal. It indicates that about half of the U.S. electorate and a supermajority of the Euro-American population across class lines, which is his base, are clearly ready for a kind of neo-fascism. I think we need to try to understand why. This obviously will complicate any kind of Biden presidency. Uh, That is to say that in light of the fact that the Republicans most likely, although it's not a done deal, will retain control of the U.S. Senate, that portends gridlock and perhaps a blockage of any progressive initiatives concerning the Green New Deal or student loan forgiveness or raising taxes on the 1%. In fact, the digital mogul, Barry Diller, has said that the gridlock is good for the investor class. Likewise, given the fact that Mr. Biden appealed so directly and strongly to Republicans, never Trumpers like former Ohio Governor John Kasich, you'll see an influx of those types into the party, which inevitably will try to turn it to the right which obviously means that folks on the left who are trying to influence the Democratic Party sooner rather than later need to be pushing for their initiatives. Uh, For example, personnel as policy, we should be pushing for Ilhan Omar, for example, as Secretary of Homeland Security. We should be pressing the labor movement to organize a march on Washington by the spring of 2021 to push for labor law reform to make it easier to organize unions so that their treasuries can expand, so that they can invest more in labor education, which is so desperately needed, since a good deal of the Trump base consists of the Euro-American working class. In fact, Senator Hawley of Missouri, who styles himself as a nominee for the GOP in 2024, has said audaciously that the GOP already is a, quote, working class party, unquote. 
Well, so, Makani, one of the things that I've heard recently in terms of discussions around the movement for Black Lives, I've heard some people actually say that it is not interfering with or perhaps interrupting the possibility for class unity. And thinking about this GOP statement that Gerald just referred to, what, what do you think the role for the Movement for Black Lives would be in any coming period where we need to have continued resistance? And what, what are your thoughts about how that can be a movement more class conscious, if it needs to be, perhaps it already is? Right. So the first thing I want to make very clear that I can't represent the movement for Black Lives. I mean, I'm I'm a member, I'm involved, but it is a coalition of literally hundreds of organizations around the country. And the way decisions are made is much more collective, right? Than just me talking to a microphone. There are folks in leadership who I'm sure could represent what the official positions are. But I think that there are definitely a number of misconceptions. One is oftentimes when people talk about working class, they they oftentimes only mean white people, which is so not true, right? And I think that um, people of color are often erased. So, you know, same people who say that they're about the working class um, don't want to talk about immigrants, don't want to talk about black folks. In fact, even some of the worker formations that are dealing with even unorganized workers oftentimes marginalize black organizations and black worker organizations. So uh, we have a definite problem with how people are constructing that. And in many ways, it's the same kind of conversation when people are talking about the deserving poor versus, you know, the undeserving, which was like white people versus, you know, black and brown people. So, and in some ways it's sad that there are folks, even, even some of our progressive folks, and we saw some of that even in the, the Bernie campaign and some other places where not Bernie himself always, but, but even folks in leadership who were making that mistake, drawing those kind of stereotypes, which I think is really harmful. And I think that, you know, when folks are talking about who's hurt by the police, we're not talking about bougie black people anyway. So it's, I don't think there's a whole lot on the M4BL from the prison reform to law enforcement to dealing with defunding the police to, you know, work on benefits to just a whole range of things is definitely a working class agenda. That said, I think what's important to also note is that there's a way in which folks blame black people for what happens in elections in a larger proportion than their voting or their action. Um, And so there's a way in which Black Lives Matter got blamed for Trump. Folks will act like folks being on the streets, organizing to try to save the lives of our people is somehow um, what messes up elections and that we should be quiet and we shouldn't make demands. And I think that's a mistake, too. I think it's important to remember that thanks to the folks on the street, many of whom were black folks, but not all of whom were black folks, a lot of black and brown and white folks on the street, we were able to move more than half a billion dollars out of police budgets into things like mental health and, you know, just so many more things that really help our community. And so that happened under Trump, you know, so we're going to fight. We're going to fight. We're going to continue to work. We're going to continue to represent all of our folks. We're going to continue to represent because when black people have justice, everybody has justice. So there's so many ways in which folks try to marginalize and misname and defame the work on the ground and act like it has no impact, act like it has a negative impact when that's simply not true. 
speaking of the work, Awari, I, I had to have you on the show. I've been meaning to talk to you for a while because when I heard that Trump made this semi-call or call or whatever he did to his uh, Proud Boys or whoever to go to Philadelphia, my hometown, and somehow people were going to show up at polls and were going to, I don't know, raise some kind of ruckus. I was like, you know, who, what, you know? And my whole thing was like, you know, I can't imagine some militia showing up in North Philly uh, trying to do something or start something. So I wanted to ask you about just the kind of atmosphere happening in Philadelphia during the past few months when Trump was really trying to signify something around Philadelphia and what your thoughts are right now as the votes are being counted and so many of those votes, those final votes are coming out of Philadelphia. No, absolutely. And thank you. Thank you for having me. Certainly glad to be on this panel with um, your other guests. That tremendous respect for. With respect to what's going on in Philadelphia, I mean, first of all, we have to acknowledge that the overwhelming turnout on the part of black people is, in fact, an effort to remove this neo-fascist from office. And in doing so, these black folk here in Philly did so while still mourning and enraged in what is the latest case of a police murder of a black person in our country, that being Walter Wallace Jr., And so you place that as the context of, again, this upsurge of black electoral power in the face of Trump's presidency. And in light of the election results, as we are seeing it, as Dr. Horn already mentioned, that once again, a supermajority of white folks have decided to vote for a man that they know has no intention. He said so just recently on honoring the democratic wish of the people of this nation, that that is a telling sign to all of us that white America evidently is more invested in white supremacy than in the development of this nation into a democracy. And of course we know that, you know, as Sister Connie shared, Black folks have once again saved this country from itself. So here in Philadelphia, no, we, you know, they're certainly organizing on the ground on all these fronts. And I suspect that organizing will continue because we are clear that even with a Biden-Harris ticket, a potential presidency, these concerns will not go away on their own. Well, Rita, I'm wondering from where you are in Phoenix, Arizona, what conversations or reporting that you've done or observed uh, tells you about the mobilization in the Latinx community there? There's already been a lot of discussion about how the, that news organizations haven't done a very good job in talking about the Latinx vote because they treat it as a monolith when there is a big difference between the, uh, the right-wing expat community in Miami fleeing fleeing revolution and, and social change in South America and Central America. And there's a big difference between that community and uh, the uh, Chicano, you know, Mexican-American communities in the West. And so Phoenix is another location where the, the election is. Everyone's looking at Phoenix 
in these days right now as the final votes are being counted. So I just wanted to know to get your perspective from there. Right. Well, thank you, Esther, for um, inviting me to be on the show. One of the things that this vote tells me and, and what's happening now is that the sleeping giant of the Latinx community in the West is, is awake and it's exercising its power. And we see this in the numbers. Arizona is a big state, but it's pretty empty, except for the major cities. When you talk about Phoenix and its suburbs, that's um, 60% of the population in Arizona. And you had a tremendous turnout. We know that Black women kind of make up the base of the Democratic Party and, and has for a long time. But when you look at what's happening now, especially in Arizona, you had an enormous turnout of Hispanic people, Latinx people, and a lot of women. So four years ago in 2016, the Latino uh, vote in Arizona was under 250,000. It was about 226,000 people voted. This year, it doubled uh, yeah. to 413,000. And more than half of those were, were cast by women, by Latina women. And these are not just the women who went to ASU or went to some other university. These are non-college educated young Latinas who came out and banded together because they were around and they remember the terror that their families went through 10 years ago when the state imposed the uh, SB 1070, which was, of course, a law that required uh, proof of citizenship, you know, by and large. It was illegal. Yeah, show me your papers. Be, the show me your papers law. Exactly. It was illegal to not have uh, documentation or to be in the state without documentation. And so a lot of people felt they had to carry their papers with them. A lot of people were arrested and spent a couple of days in jail until their families could go find the papers. It was just terrifying. So you're seeing kind of like this outpouring of activism. These are a lot of the same people. If you look at the marches in Phoenix, Black Lives Matter, I mean, it's only about 6% Black in Maricopa County and 4% in the entire state. But those demonstrations that shut down the freeways and people coming out, there's a lot of Latino people joining in that and sort of repaying what the Black community did when they were organizing and they went to places like Pilgrim's Rest Baptist Church to organize before they would march down to the state capitol a few uh, miles away. So what it tells me is that what started 10 years ago has kind of continued and is building and that people are running for office and they're excited. They're pushing better support of the schools. They're pushing better teacher pay. And they're pushing for a place at the table and not just at the table, but at the head of the table. It's uh, one race that probably didn't get a lot of attention back East is Sheriff Joe Arpaio, the former sheriff who was the terror of this area, a very conservative guy who used to arrest Latino people at the drop of a hat, would raid um, places of work and that kind of thing. So he ran to get his old job back. He's in his 80s. And so he lost the primary to his chief deputy and the deputy lost. So the Democrat who won four years ago was able to return to his seat and he handedly won. So you're seeing this movement and it's, it's really exciting to watch. Okay. This is on the ground. We'll be right back. 
This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm doing a post-election roundtable with my distinguished guests from around the country, Professor Gerald Horn, author and veteran activist Makani Timba, Professor Retha Hill, and poet and activist and educator Oware Osayande. And Gerald, I wanted to start with you. Uh, before the break, uh, Oware mentioned the black and brown people basically is like saving America again with our votes. And uh, I thought about our discussions this year about the 1619 project. And that's one of the central themes of that project that time again, it's black people that have shown the United States, you know, what democracy really is that we've been the ones to really fight for what the constitution and the bill of rights really means. So with that in mind, I want to know your thoughts about, the role that African-Americans, black and brown people in general can play uh, in the weeks ahead? Well, that's a very good question, but part of the problem is distorted news coverage. I mean, for example, if you go to a news aggregation site, you'll find a number of articles about how supposedly young black men in significant numbers have defected to the Trump coalition. Uh, which is quite a distortion. It's anecdotal based upon uh, random stories about Ice Cube and 50 Cents and Lil Wayne. And in any case, it distorts the point that the black community as a whole voted against the right about 85 to 15. And if you were to really look at what the problem is, perhaps you would look at why it is that a majority of Euro-American women, for example, uh, voted for a confessed a sexual predator, or to raise a more sensitive point in the state of California, where a measure to restore affirmative action went down to defeat. Why is it that not only did a majority of Euro-American women vote against this measure, but a significant percentage of the Asian Pacific community as well? So I think that when we talk about the black community helping to save the United States, we're really talking about helping to save ourselves because to the extent that we're going to be stuck here in North America, it's very, very ultra extremely important to make sure that neo-fascism does not sink roots in this land. You know, speaking of the, the kind of local races and local initiatives, 
Makani, I was really hoping that you could shed more light on what happened with Mike Espy, who ran for a Senate in Mississippi. From where I sit here in Washington, D.C., I heard a lot about the Jamie Harrison race in South Carolina to uh, unseat Graham. Uh, But I did not hear a lot about the attention, money raised, or support being given to Mike Espy in Mississippi. Well, you know, it's, it's complicated. And I think one of the things that Gerald said, I think is really important, and that is, this is not so much about white people to be saved. They are saving themselves by voting for white supremacy, right? They're voting, like, they're voting in their interests. This has been the story of this country for like more than 200 years. And um, there's a set of white people who are very clear about that. That's sad because I don't think it's in the interest of humanity. White supremacy is in the interest of humanity. It's not in the interest of the planet. It's not even in the interest of their own humanity. But there are a set of interests that are attached to that. And Mississippi is a classic example. But, of course, not the only place because a lot of times people try to act like Mississippi is the most racist place in the country by certain measures when this kind of racism is everywhere. I think the other thing that's important to know about Mississippi is that we actually have our own version of the Electoral College that supersedes the popular vote that incidentally was voted down this election. So not only was Mike Espy on the ballot, the first black woman Supreme Court justice which the votes are still being tallied for that. And she seems to be getting closer and closer, at least last look, to perhaps even overtaking the incumbent. And then we also had the opportunity to vote for a new flag and hopefully retire forever the Confederate-oriented flag that Mississippi has flown for so long. So there was a lot on the ballot. (laughs) And, And medical marijuana. So it was conflicting messages, right? And um, Cindy Hyde-Smith, who, who is, you know, like uniquely unproductive as a senator and not a single bill, not a, you know, hardly any votes, was able to hold on to her seat really because of racism, because she's very clear that she was pro-Confederate. Some folks may know that she made national news with her pro-lynching commentary. Um, you know, like there's a whole range in which she represents sort of the old Mississippi, as some people like to say, which is really still part of the same Mississippi, right? The old, the old Mississippi is often is the new Mississippi as well. And so we have this system where there's intense voter suppression. There's district elections, which allocates votes according to districts, and those districts are organized a certain way that is very racist and very segregated. So there's a lot going on that hopefully will change Uh, because the people of Mississippi voted to end that system. So that makes a big deal. Congressman Espy raised quite a bit of money. You know, he's a former congressman. People from all over the country did actually chip in, and he actually outraised the incumbent significantly, almost four times. And so that was a lot because of the national attention. So there was some national attention. I think what was difficult was the level of voter suppression, the difficulties that folks went in, the governor of Mississippi, who was opposed to early voting and and says he still is. We're still counting votes in Mississippi. They're missing votes. There was an attempt in, in a number of counties 
where somebody literally produced signs that said the precinct had been moved due to COVID that were not true. And they posted these in front of voting precincts. So there was a whole lot of shenanigans that was happening. So that said, it's hard to tell what would have happened if we would have had free and fair elections in Mississippi. I think it'd be interesting to see what would have happened in the United States if we would have had free and fair elections. But I think that, you know, SB did gave a very strong campaign. They motivated a lot of voters to come to the polls. People were out in very cold weather for hours in order to vote. And so it was a race that really was about, well, what kind of Mississippi is this going to be? And unfortunately, um, folks who are clinging on to the Confederacy at this point, at, at this point in the vote, at least the count that's still going on, it looks like they decided to go with Cindy Hyde-Smith instead. Okay. Now, Aretha, I've discussed on the show the poor role of the media, of news organizations in covering not only the Trump presidency, but just this election also. And um, I'm not sure where you sit in terms of, you know, your teaching and everything, but I I don't believe the whole Russiagate hoax. I don't believe any of that. And I, I think that since I think a lot of the Trump electorate has been so turned off by four years of a a failed Russiagate investigation, then uh, an attempted uh, impeachment that went nowhere, uh, not based on Trump's true crimes around kids in cages or spoiling our environment or the emoluments clause and, you know, earning money off of his personal ventures in office, but off of... uh, phone call to Ukraine or whatever. And, and I, I do think that we have to chalk up a lot of this election to the fact that the public doesn't believe the news media anymore. A lot of them don't even believe that we're in a pandemic, you know, and it's not just people who are stuck on QAnon or stuck on every word that Trump says. They, a lot of people feel like they've been lied to for four years and they don't care what the news organization's saying anymore in terms of news coverage and what is really also a very balkanized and segregated, not racially, but you can think you're living in two different countries watching, depending on what news organization you tune into. Right. And I have to make the point that we can't lump everything in one pot when you talk about news organizations. So in the last 25 years, a couple of things have happened. And one is that with social media, with you know the internet, the web, it's so easy for people to create media and to get followers. And people have done that. You know, I was one of the early pioneers uh, as a uh, founding editor of uh, WashingtonPost.com. Yes. And in the last twenty to twenty-five years, you have so many people with blogs and so many people with other ways of reaching the public, and they've been able to build on people's paranoias. They've been able to tailor their messaging uh, to demographics. So it's hard to say. It's not surprising that people would almost, like you said, seem like they're living in two different countries because some people are listening only to elements of the news uh, that they like in this echo chamber and other people are listening to and looking at other media outlets. But I think because you know about 
the emolument clause and you know about all the other things that have happened in terms of kids being put into cages and Trump's taxes and attempts to use the presidency to bolster his brand is because of the very excellent reporting by more traditional as well as some of the upstart publications out there. For example, we have the Arizona Center for Investigative Reporting here that was launched about five years ago, and it's kind of like the ProPublica of Arizona, started by one of my former students, and they're doing some excellent work digging in behind the scenes and reporting on what's happening in Arizona in, in terms of the power structure. So you have that. People are going to where they feel comfortable, and it reaffirms their worldview and helps to shape their worldview. I don't think we'll ever get back to, you know, where Walter Cronkite was the most trusted man in America, or there were only three or four or five national sources. And we shouldn't get back to that. But it's unfortunate that people will see something online and believe it, or a friend will send them something and they believe it and not even investigate, not spend 60 seconds to click around and see if something is true. Right. Well, Awari, I'm, I'm going to, because I'm running out of time or pretty much out of time, I'm going to have to give you the last word. And, and speaking of, of trust and information and, and kind of, you know, where people go with that, I want you to just talk about, you know, as, as an activist, as well as a writer, about the whole idea of kind of, I don't know, social disintegration or definitely disintegration of the political political parties as we know them. Uh, Some people believe that there's been a tremendous exit after this election, a tremendous exit from the the Democratic as well as the Republican parties that we're kind of like entering a new age. So just give me some idea of of what you think, looking at Philadelphia, looking at Mm -hmm. the activist community that you are part of, of what people are thinking, what what people want to do in terms of of independent politics or, or or continuing of politics that, that they know. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. Um, I, I, I would definitely say that there is a, the development of a very healthy critique of the two-party apparatus in the country presently. There is certainly a more progressive political movement that sits to the left of the Democratic Party that I believe in the next, you know, couple presidential election cycles will become a viable political body unto itself. Um, Personally, my hope is that uh, some type of BIPOC coalition emerges um, in this country that whether it's taking a page out of, say, what the Mississippi Freedom Democrat Party did in essentially using a a platform to push the Democratic Party to a more appropriate position um, or, you know, something more along the lines of, say, of the Green Party, where it's just, you know, totally independent of the Democratic Party. Um, I, I do believe that unless progressive, radical black folks in particular really begin to seriously consider that, we're going to continue to find ourselves being swallowed up by the neoliberal agenda of the Democratic Party. Okay, well, we will certainly keep watch over what happens as the final, final, final votes come in over the next days and weeks. In the meantime, I want to thank my panelists for joining me today, Professor Gerald Horn, author and activist, 
Makani Temba, Professor Rita Hill, and poet and activist and educator Awari Osayande. Thank you all so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Thank you. A special thanks to Lydia Curtis and Thomas O'Rourke for their contributions to today's show. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And on the site, you can reach out to us and support us there. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook or Twitter or Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our new podcast, On The Ground with Esther Averm, that's On The Ground W. Esther Averm is on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, the social media pages and website have a protest sign with green lettering that says On The Ground. And uh, if you do check out the podcast, please remember to give us a nice rating. The music we played this hour included It's Still About Freedom by Navasha Dea, Get Up, Get Into It, Get Involved by James Brown, Panamonk by Danila Perez, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>